On a summer night of 1991, in the dim beam of a train's headlight, 27-year-old Douglas Wagg Jr.'s body lay across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by the oncoming train. In the newest season of Counterclock, my look into his death has taken me beneath the surface of the place I know as home and has plunged me into the details of a mystery so big and so bizarre that it feels like fiction, but it's not. It's reality. And the reality is exactly how Doug Wagg Jr. died and why he was found so far from where he lived has never been answered. I thought I knew all about the depths of law enforcement scandals in my home state, but this case has shown me that I couldn't have been more wrong. I've uncovered a web of small town secrets, a string of crimes, missing people, and so many other suspicious deaths that I've had to rethink everything I thought I knew about where I'm from. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high-coverage foundation. More popular than soft-launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. It's the summer of 2011. The New York Times Magazine pitch meeting. Staffers of all stripes gather around a wooden conference table to discuss story ideas for upcoming issues. The table is littered with notebooks and laptops, Muji brand pencil cases and iced coffee sweating dangerously close to teetering piles of books and magazines. The walls, lined with framed front pages from across American history, Pearl Harbor, 9-11, the first black president, add a sense of gravity to the affair. I walked into a, a story meeting one afternoon at the magazine. I used to do that every once in a while, just plop in and make my presence felt because that's the kind of guy I am. But for a veteran journalist like Joe Nocera, it felt a bit like waltzing into the gym on the first day of practice, senior year. Watch and learn, freshman. Joe was a longtime business writer who'd recently been moved over to the paper's op-ed desk, where he wrote a bi-weekly column about Wall Street, the SEC, and basically any chance he got, the business of sports. In 2007, he was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for his, quote, piercing authoritative columns on business, often spotlighting misdeeds and flaws in corporate culture. His reputation was as a bullish reporter. One who looked after his colleagues but didn't suffer fools. And on this muggy New York morning, Joe felt like stirring things up. He'd been mulling a big idea. One that called for the kind of cinematic treatment that only the magazine, with its novella-scale word counts and glossy art treatments, could offer. So when the call went out for editors to share story ideas for an upcoming issue, Joe raised his hand. It wasn't so much a, a pitch as it was what the, what the lead would be like. 
the lead was more or less something like, you know, I bought this house uh, in the Hamptons and the guy next door was this famous New York psychiatrist. And he invited me to one of his parties. He had three every summer. I didn't know that at the time. Went to one of his parties, stayed about an hour. Saw Dr. Ruth, saw Richard Kind, a few other famous people. And then the Trink invited me and my wife to come over for a drink. So we did that and it was uh, very strange. Uh, across between Meet the Fockers and Fellini. The walls were just full of photographs of Ike with O.J. Simpson, Ike with Brooke Shields, Ike with Gwyneth Paltrow, who used to claim was a patient, on and on. Then Joe drops the twist to end all twists. Despite the A-list clientele and the pictures lining the walls, the fancy house in the Hamptons doesn't actually belong to the doctor. It belongs to his patient, of many decades, Marty, a guy who up until this point, Joe had just assumed was the houseboy. My next line was, would you like to read a story about this? There was a round of of enthusiasm, to say the least. I just thought to myself, this is a story everybody in New York is going to want to read. You know, period, end of story. End of story? Not even close. From Justine Harmon and Audio Chuck, this is Killed, the podcast that brings dead stories back to life. Episode 5 The Neighbor. Nearly a decade before the world ever heard the name, Dr. Ike Hirschkoff, the stranger than fiction psychiatrist in Joe Nocera's award winning 2019 podcast, The Shrink Next Door. And well before Paul Rudd hazed the shit out of his client, Marty, played by Will Ferrell in the Apple TV Plus show of the same name. Without trust, we have nothing. I trust you completely. The New York Times' Joe Nocera was in possession of something far more pure than some down-the-line Hollywood derivative. He had a good idea. But despite the performatively relaxed nature of pitch meetings... Vibes at the New York Times Magazine hadn't been all that great. No one seemed to know what the paper's newly installed executive editor, Jill Abramson, wanted from the magazine. Print ads were down, and ink-stained veterans were taking buyouts left and right. Probably one of the most culturally relevant efforts of the Times that year was a revealing documentary called Page One, all about how dire things felt aboard the SS Grey Lady. I almost feel like I don't have a clear grasp on the enormity of of the situation. Could the New York Times, like, go out of business? It was like everyone saw it. Iceberg, right ahead, but just couldn't jump ship. I think people really felt like we're, you know, we're doing this great stuff and, and we're just sinking and sinking. Those were the days when there were buyouts, like, once a year. And uh, I remember that I used to get a little bit of stock every year. And people would ask me, what should I do with my stock? I had so little confidence in the future of the company that I, saw, I always sold my stock the first day I possibly could. Still, after Joe pitched his story about a pedigree doctor who appeared to be brazenly committing malpractice in Southampton, editors couldn't resist freeing up some resources. Maybe readers would like this. Maybe Jill would like this. 
certain sections of the newspaper, they would pay you extra if you wrote for them. And the magazine was one of those, one of those things. They advanced me $10,000, the magazine. Joe was off to the races. I started looking into it and, you know, asking Marty, you know, what had happened these 27 years? How had this guy taken a hold of your, of your, of your brain? How had he turned you into his, basically his manservant, which is really what it came down to. It was a once in a lifetime story, nuanced, layered, deeply personal, a Joe Nocera specialty. I always want to hit the long ball for lack of a, you know, I want, I want to, I always want to write stories that have impact. All, I, all my career, I've been like that. You know, here was this thing that was right next door. One of the reasons I really wanted to do it was because, you know, I've had therapy, plenty of therapy in my life. And you hear this guy telling this story about therapeutic abuse. And you just think to yourself, holy shit, what would I have done? There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France, which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. This is Killed, the podcast that brings dead stories back to life. The first time I met Marty, he came over to my house to invite me to this party. And he said, hi, I'm Marty Markowitz. I work, I work for a very important New York psychiatrist. That's how he described Ike. Ike had this ability to figure out which of his patients would be vulnerable to manipulation and then move in for the kill. Over the course of nearly 30 years, During thrice-weekly therapy sessions, Dr. Hirschkopf convinced Marty to cut off ties with all family and friends and inserted himself into every part of his patient's life. He had power of attorney over his estate and an officer-level role at the fabric company Marty took over from his parents. He even moved into Marty's Southampton home while Marty crashed in a guest room. At its most extreme... Marty was working for Ike as his personal assistant slash houseboy slash gopher, even typing up manuscripts for novels Ike hoped to one day publish. The bizarre, abusive, exploitative relationship might have gone on forever had Marty not realized, while recuperating from hernia surgery, that the only person left in his life was Dr. Ike. And Dr. Ike just so happened to be MIA. After three decades the spell between patient and doctor was broken. As Marty saw it, not only did he have nothing to lose in telling Joe Nocera his story, Joe was his only hope. Dr. Hirschkopf was still practicing and advising other patients. By the time, you know, Marty got to me, the statute of limitations was running out and he, didn't, he just didn't know that he had any other option. 
he got some really bad advice from a lawyer who told him he had, he didn't have a lawsuit. He didn't have any, he would, it, it, that he wouldn't win a lawsuit. That turned out, that's actually total bullshit. There are lawyers who specialize in psychiatric malpractice and he would have, he would have won hands down. And the Department of Health seemed completely uninterested in doing anything. So here comes this journalist who lives next door and is ready to pounce because it, he, he smells a great story. He always viewed me as his instrument of revenge. Killed reached out to Marty, who originally agreed to an interview and then very politely declined. Marty, if you're listening to this, I want my Blue Yeti USB microphone back. But back then, Marty was an open book. I interviewed him a bunch of times. I interviewed other people. I found other patients who had also been manipulated and, and in my view, abused by Ike Hershkoff, the shrink. And believe it or not, I even got a two-hour interview with Ike himself because he is a star fucker. And at the time, I was a columnist and the op-ed page of the New York Times, and I was he viewed me as a star. He loved writers. He especially loved writers. And he was always inviting important writers to his pen dinner table that he bought every year with Marty's money on my head. But that's all on the story. So I work on the story through 2011. Into For two years, Joe followed the story like a bloodhound. He even sat down with Ike for a two-hour interview, but the tape broke, which is literally every journalist's worst nightmare. The reason he talked to me was because he is a, uh, a narcissist, and he assumed that he could talk me out of this story. And when he realized he couldn't, he went on the offensive and really started uh, you know, threatening lawyers and Right, having all his friends write letters to Jill Abramson, who was the, the editor of the Times at the time, and uh, Arthur Salzberger. The paper's longtime publisher and chairman of the company that owns it. But I just kept going, going along and, and, and you know, turned in some drafts. And they hired a fancy photographer to um, go to go to Marty's house and take a photograph of him in front of the house and and. Photographs of him and his sister and photographs of uh, Marty with some of the evidence that he still had in his basement of his 27 years with Ike. After two years of dogged reporting, Joe's 8,000-word piece about Dr. Ike Hirschkoff's nearly three-decade-long grift was scheduled to run as an August 2013 cover story. To Joe... The story wasn't just about a con man and his unwitting victim. It was a parable for anyone who has felt powerless. I had, at that point, undiagnosed manic depression, which had come to me really surprisingly late in life. I'd never had it till I was in my mid-50s. And I was thinking, and the story was the only thing I was... I was holding on to this story for dear life, this thing I thought the story was going to bail me out and make me okay. They closed the magazine on a Friday. And the Wednesday, two days before the closing, the editor of the Times Magazine called me and said, Joe, we're, we're holding the story. The magazine's editor, Hugo Lindgren, delivered the bad news. Hugo told me Jill Abramson, who was the editor of the paper at the time, said that it read too much like a New York magazine story and not enough like a New York Times story. Uh, by which she meant it was too much of one guy versus another guy and not enough about what's the big picture about psychiatry and abusive psychiatry and, you know, wither abusive psychiatry, uh, where this story would kind of 
We folded into that. That's what they told me. In the words of Taylor Swift, Joe's editor, Hugo, remembers it all too well. Well, parts of it. Yeah, there were just a blur of unpleasant meetings around that time. And I, I, what I, I just, I, I, I would have this image of like Jill having some manuscript in her hand that she was saying not nice things about, whether it was exactly that one or another one. It's like this sense memory of like, oh, here we go again. The reason I gave it to Jill Abramson was, you know, she didn't read all the cover stories. I mean, that you know, we would we would send her stuff if she wanted to read anything. She could read anything she wanted. Obviously, we would never keep anything from her. But it wasn't just a standard thing like here's a cover story. You know, does this meet your approval? Because the it, it, the whole system operated on trust. So we ran things that we thought were good, and sometimes we needed her input or wanted her input, or 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 it was sensitive enough that you know it, we needed the full support of the newsroom of her, you know, whatever it was. But in this case, I, I'm pretty sure that I gave it to her because I thought she would like it. You know, <laughs> I was really thinking she'd read it and be like wow, like this is what I want in the magazine, you know? And then it turned out, turned out that was not the case. So I, I just, I remember her holding it and I, I have feel no um, need to defend her on any grounds, but, um, but I would say, you know, she reads a lot of stuff she, in her job. She's constantly having to uh, weigh in on a million different stories on many different subjects. If you were just in a negative frame of mind and concerned about other problems and thinking of like all the other issues that were going on and you needed to find fault with this, you could, you know, <laughs> like, like it's weird. And, and one of the, one of the issues it has right in it is, is like the narrator problem. What if Joe had it wrong? Why was he so obsessed with his next door neighbor? A rich white guy pointing his finger at another rich white guy? I don't know. In this climate, what, what exactly is Joe's deal here? And what's your relationship to these people? And how do you know these things? And what are the legal implications of making this pretty uh, amazing charge against a, a person who had real stature in the world? There, there were definitely things to talk about in this story. And I mean that in terms of like, you know, editor to editor, what's going on here? What's the deal with this? Like, so it, in her mind, I, I, I assume those things just loomed way larger then maybe they should have, but they're genuine, you know, <laughs> like, like they, they come from a real place of like, Hey, I got to protect New York times from publishing things that cause trouble unnecessarily. Right. And also, you know, the big thing about a story like this is like the stakes are pretty low. We're not talking about, you know, smuggling weapons into another country where there are lives at stake. This is like a very distilled, concentrated story that affects relatively few people. It's not like there's some overwhelming need to get it into print or the world is, is, it's just a really good story with a lot of head scratching, crazy aspects to it. And that's what, as magazine editors, you know, those are great. You look for those, you want those. But if you're in charge of an entire newspaper with all this other stuff, sometimes you'd be like, yeah, I don't care. Like, okay, this guy's a bad guy. I, I've killed a lot of stories. And it's always unpleasant and you definitely try not to remember it. And it's just like sad and people are angry with you or, you know, whatever. It's just bad all the way around. And look, Joe's memory of this, because it, it was a much bigger deal in his life than it was in mine, right? So there may be things 
that he is sure of that I don't see the same way. And I, I'm, I wouldn't get in an argument with him about that. You know, like I wouldn't be like, Hey, no, Joe, it was really this way because I don't, you know, I don't, I didn't go back through my emails and chart it all out and be like, okay, it happened this way or that way. And, and it was, it was definitely something that I cared about and wish it had gone a different way, but I'm, I, I didn't, it, it wasn't the end all be all for me the way it was for him. Joe is not like a real bleeding heart. Um, I mean, he might be now. I don't know. But he, he certainly wasn't. He wasn't, you know, sitting in my office being like, Hugo, you got to understand. You know, Joe's a, a tough old guy. For Hugo, it was just another unpleasant memory in a sea of unpleasant memories. Your story gets killed. You catch a little shrapnel and you move on. All these things are based on a real level of trust. You know, like magazine journalism is got so many potential pitfalls and problems and people really do abuse the form a lot, right? So for successful stuff, you have to like have a real great level of trust between the writer, the editor, like all the people working on it, the fact checkers, everybody, you know, the boss of the whole enterprise, right? You need all those people to like be like, well, we all have one clear objective that we all agree on. And in that environment, we did not have one clear objective we all agreed on. So something like Joe's story coming along, you know, it was kind of just, it, 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 it was kind of collateral damage to some of these other things. It wasn't just like, oh, a bad decision in isolation, you know, like it was a product of the whole situation. But for Joe and for Marty, whose life literally depended on the story, the kill was catastrophic. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France. Which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. NetCredit is here to say yes, because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people. This is Killed, the podcast that brings dead stories back to life. After the New York Times Magazine killed his story, Joe Nocera filed away the manuscript for what he called The House Next Door. A few years later, he was taken off the op-ed desk and reassigned to sports, a move some industry hawks viewed as a demotion. Joe would eventually leave the Times to work for Bloomberg News as an opinion columnist, but he never forgot about Marty Markowitz. What I know is that in the wake of the story, I sank into a depression. It took me a couple of months to pull out of it, at least. And when I felt better, I started making these phone calls. And I did find out some interesting stuff, but I didn't, I just didn't have it in me anymore. The moment had passed. And, and the moment had passed in the magazine too. You know, they had, they had let the story go and, you know, they had moved on. Once the story was dead, I put it in my bottom drawer. Every once in a while, someone would come over to the house and we'd be having drinks on the back porch and we'd start talking about Marty next door. 
And I'd start telling them the story and they would go, holy shit. So I'd pull it out of my drawer and I'd give it to them. And they say, oh my God, this should be a movie. I mean, people are just always like bowled over by this story. I mean, it is an unbelievable story. So we get to 2018. You know, I've shown it probably to 20 people at that point. And my son, who's in his early 30s, he's an art director for streaming shows. So he, he calls me and he says, Dad, you need to listen to this podcast called Dirty John. And so I listen to Dirty John and I call him back and I say, it was a great podcast. Why did you want me to listen to it? And he said, because dad, that is how you need to tell your story. Uh-huh. So I took it to Bloomberg. And I, I had no idea that Bloomberg was actually interested at that point in doing a narrative podcast. Nor did I have any idea that Bloomberg was in negotiations with Wondery, the same company that did Dirty John. From Bloomberg and Wondery, I'm Joe Nocera, and this is The Shrink Next Door. Marty Markowitz had his share of problems. Six years after it had flatlined, the story about an abusive doc in the Hamptons roared back to life in a new medium. I go into his office and we looked at each other and uh, he said, okay, why are you here? Marty liked Ike and Ike, well... The Shrink Next Door podcast launched on May 21st, 2019. Over the course of six episodes, Joe wove a riveting tale about how one of New York's most distinguished psychiatrists inserted himself so thoroughly into one of his patients' lives that the patient virtually became his slave. And he says, you know, I don't do that with everybody. Joe's friends were right. It was cinematic. Dr. Ike was a predator, a manipulator, a narcissist, an evil genius. He was valedictorian of his NYU med school class. And Marty his vulnerable, thoroughly sympathetic victim. And Marty wasn't the only former patient Joe had on the record. One woman says he forbade her to visit her dying mother on her deathbed. The Shrink Next Door was the number one podcast on iTunes for three straight weeks and has been downloaded over 35 million times. It was such a hit that within a month of its drop, a complaint Marty had filed with New York's Department of Health back in 2012. His last-ditch effort to try to stop Dr. Hirschkoff from practicing after the Times piece was killed was all of a sudden taken out of bureaucratic limbo. With the fire of a podcast lit underneath them, the agency swiftly filed charges against Dr. Ike Hirschkoff. When we were doing the podcast, Bloomberg, where I then worked, wanted the better understanding of what had happened with the story at the Times. Because they wanted to make sure that there wasn't anything untoward or that I, you know, Marty and I had some kind of financial deal or that, you know, they just wanted to make sure it was clean. So they called up some people from the Times. They called up Jill Abramson. And she, she said, I have no memory of this whatsoever, which I'm sure is true. Because, you know, if you're the editor of the New York Times, this is like a minor blip that lasts 10 minutes. I emailed former Times editor Jill Abramson. She wrote me, quote, I've been asked about this before. I remember that Joe's personal dealings with the characters in the story were discussed, but my memory about this story is extremely hazy, end quote. Anyway, so they called some people, and one of the things they got back, which, of course, I had never been told, was there was a sense that I 
uh, was, wasn't objective enough about what had happened and that maybe I was too close to Marty, who, who I was sympathetic towards and who was my next door neighbor. And I wasn't giving Ike a fair shake. And Ike was, as I said, sending all these letters. As in letters to the newspaper's editor and publisher, threatening legal action from a renowned doctor with celebrity clients. I don't think the letters are the reason the story was killed, but I do think it, it created this extra level of caution. It's like, if we're not 1,000% sure about this, let's not run it. And, and I feel like that's pretty much what happened. It's the kind of story we can't get enough of these days. But back then, Joe says, this story about a doctor royally gaslighting his own patient felt like an untested narrative. Too small, too subjective, too strange. Not news exactly. It's a very different magazine and a very different newspaper than it was in 2000, 2011, 2012. And I think the story would have had a much higher likelihood of running today than it did back in 2011. I think in retrospect, they always knew it was going to be dead, but they, they wanted to break it to me gently. You know, I've been an editor. I know what it's like to say hard things to people. I don't have any bad feelings towards anybody over this, over this, over the, I was going to say incident. What a weird word. Over this, I don't even know what to call it. Over this thing. It turned out that the podcast was exactly the right way to tell a story. Because, you know, I had a few of the other patients' voices in the story in little dribs and drabs. But when you hear them in the podcast, and when you hear that woman, Judith, talk about how Ike cut her off from her mother, and she didn't even say goodbye to her mother when she was dying, and she didn't even sit shiva, and how now this, these were the greatest regrets of her life, and, and, and Ike had you know, basically forced her to do all of this. When you hear her almost crying when she talks about that, it's, 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 it's heart-wrenching in a way that a magazine story could never replicate. If it had been a weekly magazine, would Ike have been investigated by the Department of Health and lose his license? Probably not. Some journalists uh, get presidents to resign. <laughs> Are the journalists, you know, get a get a sleazy sleazy psychiatrist to lose his license? Uh, I've gotten so many so many of his ex patients, even people I didn't know when I was doing the podcast, have written to me and said thank you and. Um, you know, the, the sad thing is that it required a podcast to do this when Marty had been trying to get them to investigate Ike for, you know, almost a decade. In April of last year, nearly 10 years after Joe Sara first told his colleagues about the shady doctor taking advantage of his trusting patients, Dr. Ike Hirschkoff lost his license to practice medicine in New York State after a health department panel found he had committed several professional violations, including gross negligence and exercising undue influence on three individual patients. According to the official findings by the Department of Health, Dr. Ike denied the allegations and throughout the proceedings, quote, showed little insight or remorse, often portraying himself as a victim of his own beneficence. He was fined only $10,000. 
The committee has determined that to protect the people of the state of New York, the respondent's license shall be revoked. Thank God we got the decision we did because we felt it was the only decision. And so there was a bit of, you know, justice in this or a lot of justice in this. And Marty, he's cool. I'm doing absolutely wonderfully. <laughs> Life is very sweet to me these days. Marty now splits his time between Manhattan, the Southampton house he's hopefully saged, and Thailand. He's in a relationship for the first time in nearly four decades. Uh, Marty could not be happier. He's happy about what's happened with the shrink. He's happy that he was played by, by Will Ferrell. I'm just excited that, uh, that Ryan Gosling fell out. <laughs> Look, there was a moment in the premiere when, you know, it was over and people were clapping and Paul Rudd and Will Ferrell, who were standing next to each other about halfway up, pointed down at Marty, who then stood up and got a standing ovation. I, I, I tell Marty every once in a while, I said, Marty, you had a really shitty 27 years, but the last 10 have kind of made up for it. And not a lot of journalists will say this, but having this story killed was the single best thing that ever happened to the story. The piece the New York Times effectively paid $10,000 to kill was eventually purchased for $1.25 million. According to public documents, Joe filed with the New York Superior Court just a week after we spoke. He alleged that Bloomberg fired him and then withheld advertising revenue. Bloomberg did not respond to Kild's request for comment. In March of this year, Joe stopped pursuing the case, telling me over email, I dropped it once it became clear that Bloomberg had zero interest in settling and wanted to drag it out. The company had something I didn't. Money. But Joe's not down and out either. In his post-Bloomberg life, he's actually writing for The Times again. He wrote me, I hope I didn't piss all over them when I spoke to you. I always used to beat myself up because it took me three days to write the lead or four days to write the lead or a week to write the lead. It's like, oh my God, I'm wasting all this time. Uh, 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 uh. But now I know when I take a week to write the lead, it's because my subconscious is outlining the rest of the story. That's what's happening. Once I get the lead right, I know where I'm going to go for the rest of the thing and I can actually write the rest of the story. Do you always have an ending in mind? No, I don't always, but sometimes the ending will come to me like halfway through. And then I go, I, I go write the ending immediately, and then I go back and fill in to get to that point. I, I've been doing this for 40 plus years, so I, I, I have a few tricks. I have a few tricks. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Here's to the paper pushers, the rush hour warriors, and the gotta get awayers. Trade the daily grind for a place to unwind, where you can rise with the tide and roll down the boardwalk where you can eat french fries for lunch and ice cream for dinner, where your only commute is your walk to the beach, where every day feels like Saturday. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.